Maybe it's because I love animals so much. Maybe it's because my brother raises Bengal tigers. Or maybe it's because I raised two little boys. But I love Calvin and Hobbes. Bill Watterson was the cartoonist of Calvin and Hobbes, and he had the most incredible way of capturing the antics of a six-year-old boy, a precocious six-year-old boy, and his stuffed tiger, who would come alive only when Calvin looked at him. I loved this cartoon because Calvin and his tiger was, tiger was just stuffed. But when Calvin looked at his tiger, his tiger was animated. His tiger was a full-on friend. And I guess this week, as I was thinking about families, I was thinking about um, parents and their children and their stuffed tigers, I was thinking about my most favorite Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, which I brought to share with you this morning. Take a look at this. You might, how many of you remember Calvin and Hobbes? This is not a foreign language, I hope to you. This is my most favorite. So Calvin and his parents are going on a road trip, and his dad screams at him, Calvin, quit horsing around. And he says, Hobbes is crowding me. This is my half of the seat. Got it, stripy pants? That's your side. You stay over there. And then, I see that. Dad says, Calvin, I'm trying to concentrate. Be quiet. And he says, Hobbes poked me. Now, don't you love how Hobbes is just like a dumb stuffed tiger now? <laughs> He's not. <laughs> and he says, I don't care what Hobbes did. Just be quiet until we get out of this traffic. And they sit there. And there's a funny face. And there's, he, you, heard, you heard Dad stop it. And then they're making funny faces. We're going to get in trouble laughing, making faces. Oh, I just love this. This just reminds me of my boys when they were little. And then dad turns around. Note, exasperated father. Calvin, I thought I said I wanted it quiet. We were having a weird face contest, dad, but we're all through now. You won. <laughs> I just love that. That is my most favorite. And I think... As funny as that ends, I wonder if that's the exasperated father Paul was talking about in our passage today. He says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Um, so as we're looking at this lesson today in Ephesians 6, Paul is continuing to remind us how intentional we need to be as we engage in relationships with one another. Parents and children, workers, bosses, supervisors, the full gamut of of relationship at home, relationship at work. Remember back in Ephesians 5.15, Paul said that we were to be careful then how we should live. We should live as wise, not unwise people. And then in verse 16, he had said to us to be, that we were to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to look at relationships in our home and we're going to look at relationships in our workplace. And we're going to see how when we keep our eyes on Jesus, when we focus on him, we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us. 
we have a different kind of engagement with the people around us. It makes a difference. It changes everything in our environments. So our passage is naturally divided into two sections today. The first four verses are um, about Christ-centered families. And then the second verses are about Christ-centered workplaces. And what we're going to learn is that focusing on Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit brings harmony to our most vital relationships. That's what we're going to learn. So first we're going to look at Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. Last week, as you remember, Paul challenged husbands and wives to experience a one-flesh, spirit-filled marriage. And Sam, I thought, did a beautiful job. I listened to her message while I was on an airplane coming back from a conference in Nashville, Tennessee last week. And I was just so impressed with what a beautiful job she did reminding us what God's design for marriage is and was, how the fall impacted that, how the fall damaged that relationship, but how there's redemption made possible in Christ when two people are filled with the Holy Spirit and are mutually loving and serving one another. So now Paul is going to turn his attention to the children, and it's interesting to notice that he is obviously expecting that children and parents are gathered together in the worship service when his letter is being read. And notice how he addresses the children directly. So he knows that children are present, and these words are going directly to them. This is what he says. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, in the same way that Paul's exhortation about marriages was a radical departure from cultural norms, last week Sam told us about how women were valued or not valued so much in marriages. A woman was regarded more as a property in this context. She was not loved and cherished. So God's word to husbands and wives from last week's passage was a radical departure from the cultural norm. He was speaking an upside-down kingdom into the world in his words about marriage. In the same way he's doing this in his relationship, in, in what he's saying about the relationship between parents, between mothers and fathers and their children. You see, in ancient Ephesus... Children were often discarded when they weren't wanted. Babies were literally left on garbage heaps when parents didn't want them. And people could then go to a garbage heap and find a baby. They would take that baby into their homes, but often to use them for a secondary purpose. So babies would be gathered up to be sometimes gladiators, to be the, the ones who fought for sport. They would be used as slaves or they would be used as prostitutes to make money for the household. This is how children were treated in this culture. It was horrible. And so Jesus, his words about how to treat children, you know, in our context, when we read his words about how to treat children, we think, oh, of course. But in this context, to have Jesus' teaching about how children should be cared for and valued was radically different than how they valued children. So in Matthew 19, 14, when Jesus said, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, that was an upside-down perspective for that culture. 
And literally the church was upside down from the Greco-Roman society in the way that they welcomed and valued children. Listen to how one commentator described it in those days. This is how he described the church. He said, the church, it was a, a radical change from the callous cruelty which prevailed in the Roman Empire in which unwanted babies were abandoned, weak and deformed ones were killed, and even healthy children were regarded as many, as, by many as a partial nuisance because they inhibited sexual promiscuity and complicated easy divorce. That's the Ephesian culture. That's the culture that the early church was pressing into. And so this is why Paul is exhorting parents to love their children like Jesus. He's exhorting them to celebrate life because God is the creator of life. And he's teaching them how to parent their children in the way that God disciples us. So first he speaks a word to the children. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. You know, God created a very a world where it is actually natural for children to obey their parents. Do you know this is true across all cultures? This is the natural law that God has written on the human heart. Every civilization around the globe acknowledges that children are to obey their parents. Whether you're in China or Mexico or Spain or Africa, children, it's ex accepted that children obey their parents. And even in the, in the animal world, if you've watched any of the animal planet kind of shows, you see that children are expected to obey their parents. Here, take a look at this mama orangutan and how she's teaching her baby to obey. <laughs> if you're a parent, you have experienced that. <laughs> and I think that mama orangutan is a better parent than some of us who would have just given up long ago, right? Her persistence. But that's the natural order. Even in the animal world, Baby animals have to obey their mothers. It's part of survival. It's part of protection from danger. So it's right, according to the natural order of life, for children, animals, and human to obey their parents. But it's also right because God said so in the Ten Commandments. God says, honor your parents. Look at verse 2. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So this is the fifth commandment, and it's actually repeated five times in the New Testament. Children are to honor their parents with an attitude of respect, with an attitude of trust. And why is that? It's so simple because as parents, we're older, we're wiser, we're more knowledgeable. We understand our world. We know the dangers. We know the, how to survive. We, we know things. We have been given by God um, wisdom and maturity so that we can raise children you know, and that's sometimes hard to remember when you have a toddler that's screaming their guts out, wanting to do things their own way, isn't it? I remember when my children were little, oftentimes they would have temper tantrums, and I'd be so tempted in the moment just to give in to them, just to do anything to make them quiet, especially if it was out in public, because it's embarrassing, right, when your kid is throwing a temper tantrum. But I would have to actually remind myself, no, wait, wait. I'm the grown-up here. I know what's best. I know what's right. I'm going to persist in my will for this moment because I know that this child is tired or they're hungry or something's going on that's motivating this behavior and I need to be the adult and they're being the child. And so I'd have to though, remind myself of these truths so that I could press in and be consistent in my instruction. 
When we give in to a child's demands, it never goes well, actually. It never goes well for the child. It never goes well for us. And when we are able to maintain consistency and remember that we have a calling as an adult to parent um, with wisdom and maturity, then actually our children feel safe. They feel secure. They feel loved, um, even if they don't like our instructions in the moment. But a child's attitude, if a child has an attitude of rebellion it's, and disrespects their parents, it's also disrespectful to God. Do you know that it's, it's impossible, I believe, for a child to have a soft heart towards God when he or she has a hard and rebellious heart towards his parents or her parents? Because they're very connected. The one, our relationships with our parents, is a training ground for our relationship with God. And so having an attitude of trust and respect. And of course, I'm speaking of the model spirit-filled family, right? This is the model family where both parents are filled with God's spirit, are anchored on God's truth, and are loving their children as God loves them. A child who rebels against that is obviously going to have a rebellious attitude towards God as well. Now, as adults, we are also supposed to honor our parents with a Christ-like respect. And that means that we are to care for our older parents, that we're to speak well of them to other people. We're to be patient with them as they're aging. Um, we're to speak edifying words to them. And if we treat our parents with a Christ-like love and respect, you know what we're doing? We're modeling to our children how we want to be treated. And isn't that important? Because if we treat our parents with disrespect and we're unkind and not attentive to their needs, we're also modeling to our children that that's how they are free to treat us when we get into that age. So it's very important. Paul also says that obedience brings blessings. So he says in verse 3, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. This, he says, is the first commandment with a promise in the New Testament. And now this isn't a material promise. It's not a promise that says that every obedient child will have a long life. So that, we know, is not necessarily true. But it's a spiritual promise. It's a promise that says that it will go well for a child if a child follows the instructions of his or her spirit-filled parents. Children who obey their parents, parents who are following after Christ, they will not go through many of the trials of life that are associated with sin and rebellion, right? I mean, they will also be protected from dangers, things like drug use and crime and gangs and things that would lead them, that may even shorten their life, putting themselves in dangerous situations. But there's also a real spiritual blessing that comes from living life in just in accordance with God's wisdom. It comes for our children. It comes for us. When we take the word of God and we anchor our lives down upon the wisdom and we apply it to the daily situations of our lives, there is a blessing that comes from that. It's an intangible blessing. Sometimes it's a tangible blessing. And so it's, it's not a life that's free from suffering, but it's a life that's characterized by peace and by the fruits of the Spirit. It's a better quality of life than the life that's lived in rebellion towards God or a life that's filled with broken family relationships. So now Paul turns to the parents, and he has a word for parents. He says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, the Greek word for fathers that's used here is also translated parents in other parts of Scripture. So, for example, in Hebrews eleven twenty three, that same word is used to address parents, both mother and father. And I think these principles, of course, they apply to moms and dads. They apply to both. But I do think that Paul was very specifically saying something to fathers. 
I think that fathers do have a profound impact on the life of their child. You know, a strong daughter-father relationship speaks so much into how a girl sees herself and even how she relates with men as she grows up. A strong father-son relationship speaks so much into how a young man sees himself and how he engages with his life with integrity, work ethic, cherishing family. Um, in the same way, a father who has a contagious faith for Christ, it's, it's so impactful on the life of his children. So I think there's something that Paul wants to say specifically to fathers, though it applies, I think, to us as well. I will say that sadly the opposite is also true, that many people are suffering in their lives because of fathers who did not follow this example. Maybe a fatherless home, for example, or maybe a father who was not filled with the Spirit, didn't treat his children well. In fact, I found some statistics just to look at how does a fatherless home impact children. And look at this, 63, I don't know if you can read it, maybe you can, 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, that's five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32%, 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes, 14 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, 9 times the average. It makes a difference. But then, here's some statistics about um, fatherless, how, how fathers factor into education. So children with fathers who are involved are 40% less likely to repeat a grade in school. Children with fathers who are involved are 70% less likely to drop out of school. Children with fathers who are involved are more likely to get A's in school. Children with fathers who are involved are more likely to enjoy school and engage in extracurricular activities. And 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes, 10 times the average. So I think Paul's on to something when he speaks particularly to fathers in this passage. I think fathers have an incredibly impactful role in the family. And so he exhorts them first not to exasperate their children, not to provoke them to anger. He's basically saying, fathers, you need to be self-controlled. You need to be filled with the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Um, you need to show evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the attributes of the Spirit. And fathers are called to demonstrate those as they engage in parenting. A Christian father is called to nourish and feed his family, his children on the word of God. Do you know that earthly fathers are meant to emulate the, our relationship with our heavenly father? We're to see something of God as we look at our earthly fathers, and we are to understand the kind of love that God has for us, and we're the kind of also the discipline that God um, invokes in our own lives for our own good. We understand that as we engage with our earthly fathers. Now, this was just the opposite of what an Ephesian father was like. In Ephesus, the Ephesian father was strong, sovereign controller over the family. And he acted with this, this really um, brutal authority at times. In fact, a Roman father could dispose of his child by selling him as a slave. He could just decide, we're not want that child, we're going to sell him as a slave. 
And a Roman father could punish a child with the full authority of the law, which included the death penalty. So a Roman father, uncorked in anger, could literally kill his child or sentence his child to death. Um, So can you imagine the kind of abuse and fear and terror that was happening in these Ephesian families? And now imagine what kind of message Paul is speaking when he's saying, children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. It is an upside-down way of living, a way of living that is centered on Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul's teaching believers how to have a spirit-filled family. It's radical, it's countercultural, and it's only possible in Christ. So here's a truth that I think we need to understand for our lives today, and that is that your children are watching you. They're watching you. Discipleship is a hot topic right now in our culture. Everybody's talking about discipleship, and there's a reason for that. I think it's because there is a great concern that our generation is not doing a great job passing our faith on to the next generation. Now, the next generation is being bombarded with a lot of messages. For example, millennials don't believe in absolute truth. They're growing up in a world that's telling them there is no such thing as absolute truth. So they're having a hard time looking at scripture and finding truth. And then there's individualism, which is telling our young people that they can have religion in isolation. They can watch a YouTube video. They can watch an online church service. That they can do everything in isolation. They don't need community. And so we're not doing a good job. Our generation is not doing a good job pressing into that. We're not doing a good job modeling a life of faith that's contagious to the next generation. We're struggling. How do we live our life of faith in the midst of this culture, in this broken world? How are we light in the darkness? We're trying to take off the old and put on the new. We're trying to follow Paul's teachings. We're trying to model these things, but we're struggling. And so we're having a hard time inspiring the generation behind us to step into their calling in Christ and to be in love with Jesus. It's really tough. And so we're talking a lot about discipleship right now in our culture. But let me just tell you that your children are watching you. They're watching you. They're watching you. They're watching us not want to go down and serve in the children's program or be a creek leader because we'd rather feed ourselves up here or in Sunday morning service. They're watching us struggle with having joy and integrity in our Christian life. They're watching us straddle the world, straddle between the Christian walk and the the world that we live in. They're watching these things. And whether your children are young toddlers or teens or young adults or middle-aged adults, you are modeling to them what it looks like to walk a life of faith and obedience to God. They're watching you. They're learning how to trust God by watching you and seeing how you respond to life when life is scary. They're watching you to see how you navigate difficult situations not knowing what's going to happen next. And maybe it's a health diagnosis, or maybe it's a job loss, or maybe it's financial woes, or maybe it's relationship struggles or your marriage, but they're watching you. They're watching to see, do you ask God for help? They're watching to see, are you trusting in his provisions? Are you anchoring your life on his word? Are you praying for peace? Are you expecting God to do a miracle? They're watching how you respond in crisis, and they're also watching how you respond in the irritations of daily life. They're watching you. And our children learn more about God from what they see in our lives than from anything we will ever say to them. We can quote scripture upside one side and down the other. We can sing worship songs. We can go to church. But... 
all of that pales in comparison to what they see behind the, the private corners of our life where they see us working out the hard things in faith, truly trusting God. Um, we, they're looking to see the consistency in which we live and obey God in the quietness of our homes. It really matters because our children are watching us. And so who is watching you? Who is watching you? Do you know that I'm still watching my mom? I'm still watching her. I'm watching her navigate the next season of life. I'm watching her. How does she navigate being a widow? What is her life with Jesus like now that she's a widow? I'm watching her serve in her church. I'm watching her be a Bible study fellowship leader. I'm watching her play the flute in her church orchestra. I'm watching her navigate friendships. I'm watching her spend time with Jesus twice a day, praying to him. Like I'm watching her because I know that that's the next season for me, and I want to see what does it look like to be in your 80s and to be a widow and to be still following after Christ. And it matters to me that she does well in this season of life. Like, it matters to me. Because if she doesn't, if she abandons God now, then what's going to happen to me? It matters. And so I'm watching her. And, and somebody's watching you, and you're watching someone else. Because it matters how we live our lives for Christ. It matters. And so um, how are you modeling faith and obedience to your children? Now, let me just say, for those of you who, here who are single moms, it matters double for you. Um, but let me just assure you that God gives you double grace. If you're raising children on your own and you are living in a fatherless home, um, God has provided a double portion of grace for you. He is the father to your children. He is your husband. He provides himself in a way that maybe those of us who have husbands and fathers don't experience. He is sufficient. And to encourage you, Paul says to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 15, I think it is, he encourages Timothy because of the faith that he received from his mother and grandmother. Timothy didn't have a believing father. And so he tells Timothy, remember the faith that was passed on to you by your mother and your grandmother. It matters that even if you're the only believer in your family, that you're walking by faith and you're passing that faith on to your children. God's grace meets us there. Now, I know, too, that none of us walk the perfect life of faith, there, but there is grace for us as well. And I want to encourage you that it's even in your failures that you have opportunities to teach and disciple your children about things like forgiveness and acceptance and redemption. And isn't that exactly what the first three chapters of Ephesians was all about? Paul was reminding us how we have been forgiven and accepted and redeemed by Christ. And so even when we make mistakes, we even disciple our children in those mistakes by talking about forgiveness and acceptance, redemption and grace. And so these are the riches we have in Christ. And we're not called to be perfect role models, but we're called to be authentic Christ followers. And we do that by relying upon God's spirit to parent in wisdom and to parent in love. Well, let's talk about how that translates into the workplace. Paul is next addressing slaves and masters. And so before we draw any principles about employers and employees, which is what we kind of want to go to to make it more relatable, I want us to understand what slavery was like in the Greco-Roman culture because it was very different than slavery in America, and we have to understand that in order to make sense of this passage. 
First of all, in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves. In the city of Ephesus, one-third of the population were slaves at this time. So this was such a normal part of life that Paul, that people never even considered it to be wrong. It was just part of their culture. Um, listen to how one historian describes slavery during this time. He says, they did not merely do menial work. They did nearly all the work, including oversight and management and most professions. Some slaves were more educated than their owners. They could own property. They could even own slaves and were allowed to save money to buy freedom. No slave class existed for slaves, for slaves were present in all but the highest economic and social strata. Many gained freedom by the age of 30. So unlike American slavery, which was racially oriented, and it lasted for a lifetime, slavery in Paul's day had nothing to do with race, and it was only for a period of time. So usually, someone became a slave because either their parents, their fathers, gave them up, threw them on the trash heap, someone came along and took them and used them as a slave, or they, they were cap, captured in war, and so they had to become a slave for a period of time, or they had a large debts that they had to pay, and so they became a slave until their debts were paid off, or people voluntarily chose to become slaves, like if they were a homeless person. It was much better to trade homelessness in for a home to live in and to have work to do and food to eat than to be living on the streets. And so they would volunteer to, to be a slave, to work for a period of time until they could have the means to go be independent again. So this may explain then why Paul doesn't denounce slavery, because oftentimes we come to this passage and we're like, wait, Paul's teaching slaves and masters how to relate to each other, but he's never saying it's bad. Well, the reason, I think, for that is that he's not writing here to make a social statement about the legitimacy of slavery. He's simply speaking into the reality of his culture, and he's reminding people in these relationships how they should treat one another. And so he's saying, you need to emulate Christ in all that you do, treat each other being when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and when we're engaging in our workplaces, um, whether they're the, you're the boss or, or you're the employee, the master or the slave, it makes a difference. And certainly it makes life and work more enjoyable. So this is what Paul says first. He speaks first to slaves and he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Again, Paul is speaking radically, culturally offensive words. He is invoking the example of Christ to teach slaves how to serve their masters. Look how many times he talks about Christ in this passage. In verse 5, he says, as to Christ. In verse 6, he says, slaves to Christ. 7, he says, as to the Lord. And 8, he says, receive this back from the Lord. So he's taking all the focus and putting it on Christ. So in other words, he's saying, whether you are serving your earthly master when you're serving your earthly master, serve your earthly master as though you're serving your heavenly master. Focus your eyes on Christ. 
Think about serving him as you're serving your earthly master. Now, we can apply this to our own workplaces, too, because whether you're, you're an, an employee or an employer, whether you're a worker or a supervisor, there are ways in which you can serve in your role that glorifies Christ. So Paul gives us four tips. Here's four tips if you are the worker, let's call it. Four things that you could bring into your workplace. First of all, he says, show respect in your workplace out of reverence for Christ. Show respect. He's saying, take your work seriously. Other parts of scripture say, work heartily as unto the Lord. Think about working for Jesus. Speak respectfully about your organization. Speak respectfully about your employer. Your job is actually a gift from the Lord. It's a way in which God has made a means to provide for you, to provide for your financial needs. Second thing, he says, is be sincere in your job, knowing that Christ sees you when others don't. Are you a people pleaser? Are you trying hard to be seen by other people in your workplace so that you can, be, you can advance or be noticed? He's saying work to please Jesus. He's the one who sees us in the secret places. He sees the things we do that nobody ever sees. Try to be excellent in your work for Christ's reputation. The third thing he says is have a good attitude as though you are doing the Lord's work. Don't you know how one grumbling person just ruins the whole work environment? It's like negativity is like a cancer in the workplace in that it creates this toxic environment that is unpleasant for everybody. It is never good to go into an environment where there's backbiting and grumbling and negativity. So he's saying be a change agent. Be that person who walks in with a good attitude, who has a smile on your face, who brings the glory of Christ into your your environment. Speak in such a way that edifies others for Christ's sake. And then he says, be expectant that God sees you and will reward your faithfulness to Christ. Nothing ever escapes Jesus' notice. He delights in our faithfulness and he brings reward to those who bring him glory in life. And so, again, keep your eyes on Jesus. Well, now Paul turns and speaks to masters, and he says in verse 9, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Are you the boss of someone? Does someone report to you in your workplace? Paul gives four words of advice. First, he says, Treat all people equally. We all function in a variety of subordinate roles, and so everybody, though, is equal in God's eyes. So he's saying, be a person who treats others with respect and with gentleness and with humility. The second thing he says is be a safe and unthreatening leader. There's so much going on today, Me Too, so much about bullying, so much about power struggles. He's saying, don't bully people. Don't act aggressively towards people. Don't use people for your own gain, but honor them as valued partners in your organization. He says the third thing is be accountable to Christ for your actions. In fact, Proverbs 15.3 reminds us that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. God sees everything. And so be accountable to him. Nothing is ever done in secret. And then lastly, don't show favoritism. I love this about God. He is not a respecter of persons. And so he tells us not to be a respecter of persons. Every person should be treated um, with respect. 
So the truth is that we are, Paul's telling us that we can bring glory to Christ in our workplaces through our attitudes and through our work ethic. We can bring glory to him. Now, it's interesting because many of us actually serve in both roles. Many of us are, are working for someone and supervising others. So we're often in both roles where we're trying to, to serve someone and to, and to um, supervise someone. And isn't that interesting because it's the same in what Paul just said to parents and children. All of us are children. We all have parents. Not all of us have children and are parents. But to see that these words that Paul is, is teaching us, they are both sides of their relationship. He's teaching people how to engage with each other, focusing on Christ and being filled with the Spirit. Do you know that um, there is no separation between the secular and the sacred world? It is no different for someone who works in the church than someone who works out in the world. That in the same way, Jesus is our boss. He's our master in both places. So we do all things unto him. Whatever your job might be, you represent Christ in that place. Just as though I represent Christ in this place, I don't represent Christ any more as a pastor than you do as a counselor, as an administrator, as a teacher. We represent Christ the same way no matter where we are. So Paul's reminding us to be filled with the Spirit in our workplaces just the way that we need to be filled with the Spirit in our parenting and in our marriages. We are just utterly dependent upon the grace and power and forgiveness and love of God to glorify Him in every human relationship. That's what he's been teaching us. In every human relationship, we are dependent upon Him to glorify His Spirit and His Son to bring glory to Him in our relationships. So will you think with me for a minute, how can you emulate Christ in your workplace? Whether you're the boss, whether you're the employee, how are you doing all things for the glory of the Lord? Who in your workplace needs a special word of encouragement, a special word of kindness? You have no idea what that means. Just last week, I had one very, very difficult meeting on a day that brought me a lot of discouragement. And you know what? The next morning, somebody in my sphere here at the church wrote me the most encouraging email. And though I cherished her words, I knew it came from the Lord. She was glorifying God in what she said, but only the Lord knew exactly what I needed to hear in that moment to pick myself up, dust myself off, and start all over again. That's what you do. You become instruments of the Lord when you walk into your workplace and you encourage someone. You speak a word to them. You have no idea what's going on in the backdrop of their life and how desperately they need that. Maybe you're the one who's been spiraling into negativity and gossip. I want to challenge you to reboot. Start fresh tomorrow morning. Start fresh at noon today. Whatever it would be, start fresh and be a source of affirmation and kindness to your coworkers. Ask the Lord to give you his eyes to see people the way he sees them so that you can speak wisely and spirit-filled words into their hearts. Because truly, focusing on Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit is what brings harmony to our most vital relationships. And we can't do it in our own strength. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need the, the infilling and indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And when I think about this, I think about all the time that I spend in my family and in my workplace, so many hours of each day. Don't you want those to be the most harmonious places to hang out? I do. I want to do all that I can do in Christ so that my home and my workplace are the best places to spend my time, not only encouraging me, but encouraging the people that I get to be with. 
Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the practical teaching that you give us about these core relationships in our lives. We fail time and time again. We don't see things rightly. We get tangled up in pride or entitlement or hurt feelings. Lord, you know those things, but you still call us to lay those things at your feet, to be filled with your spirit, to keep our eyes on Christ, and to love others the way that you love us. Lord, I pray you'd help us. We need your help. Life is complicated. Relationships are broken. There's baggage. But with you, Lord, you give us the grace and the strength and the perspective to engage with people the way that you would like to engage with them. And so I pray that you would forgive us, and I pray that you would help us. Could we reboot right now and start fresh as we step into our workplaces and into our families Could we be instruments of harmony in these relationships for Christ's sake? It's in your name we pray. Amen.